So you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to uh, ask you to continue to pray for my wife. She's sick this morning. She's been sick all week. And because of her some of the medications she's on due to her uh, stents and stuff that she had put in, uh, she can't always recover from a cold or whatever very easily. So she's due to fly out on Wednesday to go back to Florida. So I pray that she'll be better by then. So you can join me in that prayer uh, this coming week. As we turn to Matthew 18, we've <clears throat> the second week <clears throat> that we spent here in Matthew 18. And uh, as we remember, this entire chapter, the entire chapter is basically a discourse from Jesus on the childlikeness of the believer. He's showing us that believers, those who put their faith and trust in Christ, are like children. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4. And so this is kind of the second segment of this discourse that he's giving on the childlikeness of the believer. This morning... I entitled this Stumbling Blocks to Faith or the Danger of Causing a Christian to Stumble. Remember last week, in verse 1, we saw how the disciples came and they asked Jesus a question. It was actually the wrong question at the wrong time, you might say. Uh, And they asked this question in verse 1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you say, well, why was that a wrong question? You have to understand the context. If you look further back in 17, Jesus just got done explaining to his disciples the ones that are going to carry on his work after he's gone, that he's going to have to be um, taken, arrested, suffer, killed at the hands of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders. And he did include that he would be raised on the third day, which, but still, it's just, it's not an appropriate question at this time. It would be, I remember one time I was in a meeting with some men, and we were meeting in my office, and one of the individuals at the end of the meeting reached out to the other individual kind of in a reconciliatory manner and kind of said, you know, maybe we didn't handle things all that correct and I just want to apologize if I offended you or whatever. And, and uh, you know, this, this, the person that was saying this was emotionally um, upset. They really felt bad about what had gone on prior in their experience together. And as he's reaching out to this person... To embrace him, the person reached out with his hand, how's your golf game? (laughs) Just the wrong statement at the wrong time. Totally inappropriate. And that's kind of what the disciples were doing here. They asked the wrong question at the wrong time. Sometimes it's not the questions we ask, but sometimes it's the timing of those questions. We all know that all too well, right? That we need to be sensitive about. Secondly... Not only did they ask a question, in verse 2 we saw that Jesus sets the stage and he uses as an illustration a little child in their midst. Maybe it was one of Peter's children. They were in Peter's home. And it's rather interesting that Jesus reached out to a little child and the little child came over no problem. It reminds me of an illustration I read in one of Ironside's commentaries. And he said that there was a pastor, rather stern-looking pastor, serious man of God, you know, one of those guys. And he was preaching on the tears of Jesus. And this little girl was sitting in the front row right below the pulpit. And he made this comment, this statement. He said, three times we have read that Jesus wept. 
Nowhere in Scripture do we ever read that he smiled. He had a very stern face. And the little girl sitting down in the front pew right below the pulpit cried out, Oh, but I know he did. <laughs> Everybody was like, Whoa, what, what was that? And shocked at the interruption, the minister looked at the child and said, Well, why do you say that, my child? And now the poor little girl's scared out of her wits, realizing that the whole church is focused on her. And here's what she said, because the Bible says that he called a little child to himself and he came to him. And if Jesus would have looked like you, he would have ran away. (laughs) Now, she wasn't being rude. She was just being honest. See, Jesus loved children, and children loved Jesus. They would never hesitate to come. And we saw how he used this child as an illustration. And then in verse 3, we saw that Jesus stated the way that you enter the kingdom. They're asking, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus? And he say, he's telling them, well, you want, first of all, you want to make sure you're getting in the kingdom, right? That's kind of an important point to understand, first of all. And he answers the question, and he says, you must repent or turn and become like a little child. And we looked at that last week. And we noticed that it didn't say you have to become childish, Right? You don't have to become childish, but you have to become childlike. And we said that the the childlikeness means that you become humble, that you become teachable, that you become dependent on God. That was the role as we looked at it last week. And then verse 4, he actually finally answers the question. And he says, you know what? The person who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be that person who is the humblest. Not what the world says today, is it? But let's look at our text today. That brings you up to where we have been. But let's look at verses 5 through 9. And I just want to read the whole uh, the, the section there, verses 5 through 9 for us this morning. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell of fire. Now, when you read those scriptures, there's probably a lot of questions that pop up in your mind. What's he talking about? I mean, this little child's right there in his midst and he's talking about cutting appendages of the body off. Well, last week we looked at the condition of entering the kingdom as a child. You have to become childlike. And today we're going to look at the treatment of God's children. Because I believe that there's, it's a very important 
subject matter for us today in the world in which we live. You know, as human beings, as parents, as grandparents, all of us would no doubt agree that children are one of the most precious entities in life. When you're entrusted with that little human being, that little baby, that little boy or that little girl, it's just a precious thing that happens there between the mother and the father and the, the, the children, it, it, the family, the whole thing is just so precious how God has created it. And there's something special, I think, in our hearts that we feel about children in general. We want children to be cared for. We want children to be loved. We want children to be protected. We want children to be taught. We want, really, what bottom line is, we want what's best for the child, right? And when we notice that something's happening to a child that may not be best or maybe potentially harmful or hurtful to that child, most of us would intervene. Most of us would, would come to the protection of that child. We don't want to see a little child harmed in any way. We wouldn't just stand there and allow that to happen. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen, sick, sin-stained world. And there are people who exist, I believe, for the sole purpose of bringing harm to children. It doesn't seem right that any harm should come to an innocent child. Any one of us would agree to that. But that's not how the world operates, unfortunately, because it's controlled at the moment by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, and his demonic hosts, who are the author of sin and destruction. And personally, I can't think of a more innocent child than that of the unborn fetus. And we live in a society today, beloved, that finds no fault with a mother who is inconvenienced by her pregnancy and is allowed to kill her unborn child legally under the law to the extent of 22% of all pregnancies end in abortion here in the USA. Almost 2% of those abortions occur late term at 21 weeks or more. The Guttmacher Institute lists 53,310,843 abortions here in the United States since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was settled. In the calendar year 2009-2010, over 1,212,400 unborn children were murdered through the vicious legal act of abortion. So, our society has some concern about the care for children. But it's really sick at the very core to even allow such brutal, horrible acts to happen against the most innocent child, the unborn child. But you know what? It doesn't stop there, unfortunately. It doesn't stop there. Just this last week, I was at the coffee shop reading the local Daily Journal, and I picked it up, and here's what it said on the front page. Man, 21, accused of sex with Belmont girl he met online. A 21-year-old Redwood City man had been arrested on suspicion of having sex with a 13-year-old Belmont girl he met online, police said. Officers took him into custody 
at around 8.30 p.m. Tuesday at his job in Menlo Park on an arrest warrant that alleges unlawful sex with a minor. See, this is not a rare occurrence. This is a daily occurrence. The crime against children, sexual abuse, drug abuse, whatever it might be, is running rampant in our society. And while the world seeks to reform and to treat such child predators with a hand of grace, trying to make them better, the Word of God takes a different view altogether when it comes to someone who is harming a child. As a former youth pastor of over 15 years, I, can, I have no lack of stories I could tell you personally that I've seen where sons and daughters, children's teens, college-age students, young people, have been harmed or influenced to do evil, to sin. Whether it's been sexual or drug abuse, even breaks your heart when you see a a kid that comes up through the youth group and, boy, they're all gung-ho for Jesus. And for whatever reason, they end up in some secular university somewhere and they come back and their mind is filled with a bunch of mush. They don't believe in God anymore. They don't believe in creation. They don't believe in anything. What a horrible thing to happen to a young mind. Well, if as human beings, we get a little upset about child predators and sexual abuse of children and things like that. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine how God feels when someone reaches out and causes one of his children harm or causes one of his children to sin? I mean, can you imagine how he feels about that? That his children, who he desires to be respected and protected and nurtured, are driven down a path or drawn down a path of sin. And I, I think most of us as Christians here today would say, you know what, we, we would be very careful how we want to treat other Christians, knowing that they're children of God, that they're just like we are. First John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So it's, it's almost impossible for us to think of a Christian actually reaching out and harming potentially another Christian. In other words, if you really love the Lord, you certainly would love his children. That's what the Bible teaches. If you seek the glory of the Lord in your own life, then hopefully you're going to seek the welfare of his children as well. I mean, it just seems kind of obvious. You wouldn't want to undermine somebody else's spiritual growth in their Christian walk. Well, you say, well, what does that have to do with what we just talked about? You have to understand what Jesus is dealing with here in Matthew 18. Because the disciples, his disciples, the ones that he chose, these are the guys that are going to carry this work on after he's gone. And remember, he's pulled away from the crowds. He's spending time now just with this exclusive 12 men, trying to teach them, trying to train them, trying to disciple them. He wants to give them as much as he can because in a couple of months he's going to be hanging on a cross and he's going to be out of here. So his time is limited. 
the disciples who are the children of God, who belong to Jesus Christ, what are they doing? Well, we find here in Matthew 18, and if you look over in, in uh, Mark and Luke and the other gospel, Mark and Luke, the other accounts of this same thing, you find out that these disciples, they're all children of God, but what are they doing? They're arguing. <laughs> they're looking at each other, wondering who's going to be the greatest. They're provoking one another to bitterness, to rivalry, to ambition, to pride, to envy, jealousy. They're being self-seeking. In other words, they're mutually causing each other to sin. That's what they're doing. And the Lord takes this matter into his hands by instructing them as to the importance of not causing one another to sin. That's what this text is about. Now, if you look through the Bible, you're going to find out that God is very concerned how his people are treated. That's just bottom line. Psalm 105, 14. It says that he rebukes the kings on their account. He doesn't allow anyone to oppress his people. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It says, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you, speaking of God's people. And I will dishonor those who... And those who dishonor you, I will curse. God is very concerned about how his people are treated, beloved. How you treat God's people is really a determiner of whether you're going to receive the cursing of God or the blessing of God. And here, sure, he's talking about Israel. But you know what? In the New Testament, we are grafted into that. We are God's people as well through Christ. Genesis 27, 29 says, Cursed be everyone who curses you, speaking of God's people, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So the bottom line here is we have to understand how we treat God's people, God's children, determines whether we receive blessing or cursing from the hand of God. And he always has desired his people to be treated in a respectful way honorable way. In Deuteronomy 24.4, it says, and you shall not bring sin upon the land. Do you understand this truth? Not only are you not to sin as individual Christians, God has instructed us to live a holy, righteous life before him, filled with the Spirit, living in honor of, of Christ on a daily basis. We get that. We shouldn't be out there running around in the world, sinning openly, sinning privately. It dishonors Christ, dishonors God. But not only are you not to sin, but you are not to cause someone else to sin. In other words, God is very concerned that we not cause his people to sin, whether we're one of his people or not. (laughs) So that brings up this issue here in Matthew 18. Jesus brings up this whole matter of responsibility in regard to each other. Most people who call themselves Christians have a concern about their own holiness. Most Christians, you know, they wake up every day and they don't say, wow, what what sin can I do today? No, they they have a desire to live a holy, righteous life. And they ask for God. They're dependent on God, the Spirit of God, to, to help him do that moment by moment. Most Christians, I would say, are concerned about their own purity. But see, 
I don't know if most Christians stop and think about the purity of others. I just don't know if that's first in our mind. We're trying so hard to live a holy, righteous life ourselves, we kind of lose focus when it comes outside of ourselves. Maybe we sort of just take care of ourselves. We don't worry about how we may be affecting others. See, that's totally contrary to what God is saying and what Christ is teaching in this passage, that kind of an attitude. We must not only do no evil in our own lives, but we are called to never cause another Christian to sin, knowingly. And that's a specific message of what we're looking at here this morning. Well, let's look at these three points as we work our way through this text. Three points. The promise presented, the punishment pronounced, and the prevention prescribed. In verse 5, we see the promise presented. Very straightforward here. He says in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Notice it says there, whoever. That's anybody. You could be a Christian, a non-Christian. That doesn't matter. Whoever does this receives one such child in my name receives me. What that says to me is that it's impossible to remove God from his people. It's impossible to separate God from his people. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to treat me a certain way, you're, you're, you're treating God a certain way. And if you're treating my children a certain way, you're treating me a certain way. If someone disrespects a member of your family, they're disrespecting your family. You don't just say, oh, that doesn't matter, that's... That's Brother George. We don't care about him. No, he's still your blood. He's still got your name. It's impossible to separate the Lord from his people. In Zechariah 2.8 it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you, you know what it says? Touches the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye. That was a Hebrew way of saying, When you touch Israel, you jam your finger right in God's eye, right in his pupil. You ever had someone poke you in the eye? It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. Very volatile area of the body, the eye. God says here, when you take a poke at God's people, you're poking me in the eye. You're poking God in the most sensitive area. Why? Because when you receive his people, that's what it says in verse 5, you're receiving him. You can't separate the two. The implication is he's bound up with his people as one. And we see that over and over in the New Testament. That we are not just, as Christians, we're not just following some bunch of rules, and we're not just part of a system of religion... That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says just the opposite. It says we're people who are united with God. That we are one with Christ. We don't just follow his teachings. We're one with him, the Bible says. The Lord taught that over and over in Matthew 10, 40. It says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
In the Gospel of Luke, over and over again, you see it. In, in one example in Luke ten sixteen, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you, speaking to his disciples, rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You can't remove God from his people. John 13, 20. Jesus said, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. John 14, 20. In that day you'll know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. We're all together in this deal. Remember in Acts chapter 9 when Saul was on his road to Damascus and the Lord revealed himself to him because Saul had been persecuting Christians, killing Christians by the dozen, thinking that he was doing the right thing as a a Jew, as a Pharisee. He was taking care of these annoying Christians. He believed in his cause. And the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting all these Christians? Is that what he said? He didn't say that. What did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, though Saul was killing Christians, the persecuting Christians, the Lord says, you're doing it to me. And that very familiar biblical truth that God's life is bound up with his people. And when you touch his people, you're touching him. It's a very foundational principle in the word of God. He's saying that we are one with the Lord and whoever receives us receives him. How you treat Christians is exactly how you treat Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not. Anybody. Verse 5, whoever, anybody, shall receive. That word receive means to welcome as a guest, to treat with kindness, to treat with love, to embrace is the idea, to take them in, to receive them in. Whoever receives, it says they're in my name. Why, Why does he put that in there? Because they belong to me. That's what God's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. They represent me. They are one with me. In other words, when you embrace one who belongs to Jesus Christ, when you welcome them as a guest, when you treat them with care and protection and kindness and love, you're doing that to Jesus Christ. That's a very important truth. Verse 5 also says there, one such little child. A lot of debate what he's talking about here. Some have thought it means an actual child. And you say, well, Steve, didn't you just say he had a little child there in his midst? He took one of Peter's little kids and brought him over because the disciples were saying, who's the greatest? And so he uses this little child as a prop, as an illustration. Yeah, that's what he's doing. I don't think he, in verse 5 here, is talking about a literal little child. I don't think that's the point of the text. The child that Jesus has in his arms, what's he doing? He's using it as an analogy. He's using it as a demonstration. He's using it as a symbol, as an illustration. He's talking here about one such little child. Well, look at verse 4. What little child is that? It's the one who humbles himself as an illustration of that child. 
Or in verse 3, where he says, become as a little child. In other words, he's talking about the same little child that entered the kingdom. The same little child whose humility made him great. The same little child who you're going to receive. It's a spiritual little child. It's a believer. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about a child of God. The one who comes to Jesus Christ by faith. He's not talking about a literal baby here. I mean, so many times I've heard people preach out of this text and they use it as a a treatise for the care of physical children. Now, yeah, I opened up with some illustrations of some situations where kids weren't cared for physically, but it was just that. It was an illustration. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. I mean, God doesn't want harm to come to children by any means. But here he's talking about a spiritual little child. It's talking about how you treat one of God's children who came to him in humility, who came to him with simple childlike faith. That's the whole point. No matter how lowly, no matter how humble, no matter how lacking in sophistication or otherwise that child may be, they need to be treated respectfully because they're one of God's children. And so how you treat Christians is how you treat him. That's the point. Jump over to Matthew 25, and we see this once again, just real quick, Matthew 25. Look at verse 34. Here we we see the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, verse 40, will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers. What? You did it to me. See, how we treat other believers is how we treat Christ. The very important basic principle. So that's the positive side of what Jesus is saying here. The promise presented. Look at the negative aspect in verses 6 to 7. The punishment pronounced. Notice he starts off there in verse 6 with that little word but. Adversative. In other words, what he's about to say is, you know what? I I gave you one side of the coin. I gave you one side of the story. Let me tell you the other side. I gave you the positive side. If you receive one of these little ones, then you receive me. That's good. But, he says, here's the other side of it. Whoever, once again, whether you're in the church, out of the church, saved or unsaved, Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter. Whoever, he says, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That phrase, cause to sin, cause to stumble, 
Offend is another word you could use. By causing them to do what? How do you cause them to stumble? You cause them to sin. That's the only thing it could mean. That word means to trap them. To catch them in a trap. A death trap. A sin trap. To make them stumble into evil. It's the very opposite of verse 5. Where we're called to protect them. Care for them. Receive them. As you would one who would receive Christ. But here... He says, it's the opposite. On the other hand, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me, and that's why I know he's not talking about little physical young children. Infants can't believe in Christ. They don't have the cognitive ability to comprehend the gospel. That's why I believe the Old Testament teaches when a young baby dies, they go go to be with the Lord. So he he says here that if you cause one of these little ones who believes in me, so he's talking about Christians, believers. You know, one thing here, just quick, and I think it's important as parents, you know, when you're, you're raising up your children, and I see this with my grandkids as well, and they, they start to inquire about Christ. That can be a very blessed time or that can be a very frustrating time. A couple things. When you're, when you're sharing the gospel with your children, okay, it's important that you understand these things. Remember that, first of all, they need to hear it over and over. They need to hear it repeated. They need to hear it restated over and over and over. You give them the gospel simply and briefly. But don't assume that the first response means that they got it all. Because they're not going to. I mean, look at yourself. How long did it take you to get it? Okay, now you're dealing with a little, little child. Continue explaining. Use illustrations. Use biblical illustrations to explain the gospel to them. Um. Too many parents of children equate every positive response with a real conversion. So if you ask a little child, do you want to go to heaven? Yes. Do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord? Yes. Yes. They're going to say, you don't even know what they're saying sometimes. You have to be careful about that. They need to hear the gospel over and over again. Don't rush it. Also, secondly, use scriptures. So many times we get sidetracked with little tracks or little other little books that are at their level and we think, well, they can't understand. No, they can understand. They can understand when you sit down and you, you read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you take it and you, you make that in bite-sized chunks for them to understand. Do you understand that that means everybody does wrong things? They're going to understand that. That's not very hard, hard for the heart of a child to understand because we're always getting in trouble anyway, right? I mean, they get it, yeah. I mean, we're sinners. They know that. But they need to be explained that through the Scripture. Um, don't always rely on an on a outline or a little track or something like that. Use the Word of God. That's where the power is. That's where the power is. Um, Only the Bible can speak with authority to the human heart, even a child's heart. 
So use repetition, use the scripture. I kind of said this, avoid prefabricated presentations. Um, you know, sometimes a track or something like that, I mean, they're okay. I mean, but, but a lot of times you're working toward an end. And sometimes we work towards the end so much that we're almost pushing someone in a certain direction, maybe they don't want to go, or maybe they don't even understand. Maybe they just get to the point where they just say, yeah, 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 to everything you say. So just use the natural way of teaching somebody something. You don't have to have a little booklet or anything like that. And then also, lastly, and this is so important, remember that the issue in salvation, the issues are the same whether you're talking to an adult or whether you're talking to a child. The issues are the same. They need to repent. They need to confess the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I mean, it's the same thing. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, We must be very careful that we do not modify the gospel to suit various age groups. There is no such thing as a special gospel for young people, a special gospel for the middle-aged, or a special gospel for the aged. There is only one gospel, and we must always be careful not to tamper or tinker with it, as a result of recognizing these age distinctions. At the same time, there is a difference in applying this one and only gospel to the different age groups. But it is a difference which has reference only to method and procedure. The truths of the gospel must remain the same. And remember, it's not you as their parent who leads them to Christ. It's God who does the work in their heart, who draws them. Yeah, he uses you to teach them the truth of the word of God and everything, but it's God who saves them. You don't save your children. And once you understand that, then you, you, boy, you can kind of sleep at night, realizing that this is a work of God. This is something that you pray for. This is something that you teach toward. But you know what? The ultimate decision for them to become a Christian and follow Christ, that's something God does in their heart. It doesn't matter whether they're 7 or 8 or 10 or 6 or 30 or 50. We can't save anybody. We can just give them the message. God has to do that work. So back to our text here. He's talking clearly about believers. And he wants them to be childlike. Not childish, childlike. And he says there, when you cause one of these to sin, look at what it says. It would be better for him, or it would be preferable, you might say. In other words, it would profit you more to have a great millstone fashioned, fastened around your neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What's he saying? You want to mess with God's children, you better, you, you'd be better off dead, pal. That's what he's saying. Not mincing any words. He, they knew exactly what he was saying. You'd be better off dead than alive than offending a Christian, making them sin. That's how serious this is. God is not only concerned that we do not sin, but that we don't make other people to stumble or to sin. And if we do that, and we do it especially intentionally, you'd be better off dead than to mess with one of God's children in that way. The language there is so alive. 
You know, in those days, they used to crush corn, they'd crush wheat, they'd do all that kind of stuff to make bread and to make dough and all that. And in their home, they would have a little, today, I guess they call it a uh, mortar, what is it, mortar and pestle, you know, a little thing you grind up your, your uh, garlic with and all that to make your little dressings and all that. They would have one of those in the home. You know, it was kind of a stone, and they would use that to grind some of the things. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a cinder block, beloved. He's not saying, oh, go put a brick around somebody's neck and throw them in the, you know, the Hudson. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is so direct here. He's so vivid. He says, millstone. That's not one of these little stones you have in your house. Literally, it means the mule stone. It's that stone that was out back in the backyard that was used to grind all the the barley and the weed, and they couldn't move it by hand. Only somebody like Samson. Remember when Samson was hooked up to it? I mean, somebody of his strength had to do it. But usually they would use oxen or they would use mules to, to make this millstone go round and grind up this wheat because it was so heavy. It weighed tons. This is not just a little block of stone. And Jesus says, you know what? If you're out there causing other Christians to sin, you better think twice. You'd be better off dead than mess with my people. It says they're in the depth of the sea. The language there is so vivid, it means as far out as you can go in the open sea. This isn't just like off the pier, okay? I mean, you drown there. But God takes this so seriously. He doesn't want, to, want you to drown where other people are. He wants you to drown alone. He wants you to suffer. He wants pain and agony when you touch one of his children in a harmful way. That's how serious this is. See, Jews didn't drown people for any kind of crime. They just didn't do it. The Romans did. And so when Jesus started using this imagery and he's speaking there to the disciples, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, their eyes are rolling back in their head. They're thinking, man, this is serious stuff. And that's why Jesus says that it would be better for you a lonely, to die a lonely, terrorizing, shocking, painful death. It'd be better off for you to be dead and die by the worst death imaginable than to offend a Christian, to cause a Christian to sin. I mean, think now, the disciples are gathered around. What have they been doing? They've been arguing. They've been causing each other to sin because their pride and their egos got in the way. I'm sure there was a couple gulps in the the room there as Jesus went through this illustration. Those who come into God's kingdom come as small infants. They come as children. They're weak. They're lowly. They don't have any resources of their own. They need protection. They need care. They need to be guarded. They don't need to be exposed to danger. I mean, you know, that idea of protecting children, even... It even works its way into our church, how we work in our church, how we do things within our own church. Whether it's down in the Sunday school or whether it's over in the nursery. 
You know, there's, there's certain policies that we have to have in place. Why? For the protection of those kids that are given into our care. God expects that within his family that we never cause one of his children to sin. How do we do this? Say, so, well, gee, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. <laughs> it's that serious. How, how does this happen? Well, first of all, directly tempting. Directly tempting people. I mean, Satan can use us, the world can use us, the flesh can use us as a direct source of temptation in someone else's life. I mean, we've, we've lived with this since we've been little. You know, I remember when you were little kids and mom said, I don't want you going down to that store. You know, you can go over to the Johnny's house, but don't go to the store. And what do you do? You get over to Johnny's house and Johnny starts saying, hey, let's go to the store. And you're going, ah. mom said, no, but mom's at home. Johnny's here. <laughs> let's go to the store. What do you do? You're influenced to do evil. You're, you're being directly tempted. And that just doesn't happen with kids. That happens probably a lot during the month of April. Get down there dealing with your taxes. Start looking at the numbers. And the accountant says, oh, you know, you, you could do this. Nobody's ever going to find out. Whether it's business, family, friends. We're going to overbill this customer just a little bit. I mean, after all, we did work hard. Directly tempting people for evil. That Eve is a classic illustration of this. She sinned, and then she basically just caused Adam to sin. He wasn't deceived. He just did it. <laughs> you look at Aaron in the Bible. You look at Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12. I mean, he was like the master, the leading illustration in biblical history of somebody who makes someone else to sin. He was a vile, wretched, ungodly sinner himself, but that wasn't good enough. He led a whole nation into sin. <laughs> so, God, so, so different is God from that. God would never do something like that. God would never lead us into sin. As a matter of fact, that's what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. What's known as the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. Lead us not, what? Into temptation. And the idea is God would never lead us into temptation. James 1 says, Let no man say when he is tempted he's being tempted by God, for God tempts no man to sin. God would never tempt his people to sin. He would never lead them down that path. He would lead them in the opposite direction. And if God does that for his children, then we should do the same. That's why the Bible speaks so forcefully against what they call false teachers. Those people who stand in front of people because they lead God's people into the worst kind of sin. They really misrepresent who God is. And all of a sudden it becomes about health and it becomes about wealth and getting your healing and all this stuff. See, if your God isn't right, you can't settle anything. And when you have a false teacher out there teaching a wrong representation of who God is, you better be careful. So directly we can do it. Also indirectly, Ephesians 6, 4, I won't go into this, but it says, Parents, provoke not your children to wrath. Now there he's talking about your physical children. 
Provoke not your children to wrath. Don't exasperate your children. Don't frustrate your children through overprotection or favoritism or pushing them to achieve at levels that are outside of their boundaries or failing to sacrifice for them, failing to allow them to make mistakes or neglecting them or giving them bitter or angry words or physical punishment that's abusive. There's indirect ways we can do that. Thirdly, we can lead people down a sinful way by just setting a sinful example. Just setting a sinful example. Perhaps people in our own family, people that know us, that follow our life, we can literally lead people into sin. I think of the illustration of the little boy who, his dad was an alcoholic and Late one night, his dad just needed a drink, and it was the middle of the winter, and it was snowing hard. It's like 10 o'clock, 10.30. And the dad got up and thought the kids were asleep and went out the front door and was walking down to the local bar. And as he's walking down, and the snow's falling hard, the crusty snow, he paused for a second, and he heard this crunching behind him. And he turned around, and there was his little six-year-old son following him. Turned around, he walked, he goes, son, what are you doing? You know, I'm just walking in your footsteps, dad. Here dad is going down to get another drink at the local bar. Story ends, it says his dad never took another drink. See, there's a responsibility we have when we're setting an example. And it's so important to understand that. If you're not faithful as a person, ought to be faithful to the things of God, to the people of God, to the word of God, to the throne of God in prayer. And if you're not faithful in living an uncompromising life, you're setting a pattern for someone. Could be your children. Could be those you work with. You're setting a pattern for those people to fall into sin. They can look at your life and say, oh, well, they're a Christian. and You know, that's how they do that. That's fine. Setting an example. The second thing is that we set a bad example also by when we abuse our liberty. We abuse our liberty. See, here we're not talking about right and wrong things. But we're talking about the things in the middle, the things in the gray area. And these are the most difficult things to deal with sometimes. Doug read out of uh, Romans 14. I encourage you to read that on your own. When we get the feeling that we're so free in Christ that we can just do whatever we want, no matter how it affects anybody around us, I think we're on a dangerous path. I think we have to be careful. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 says, Take care of this, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And he's talking there about eating the temple... Uh, meat that was sacrificed. And some people can't deal with that. They didn't understand it. Paul's saying, yeah, you can eat it. It's not holy meat. Just go ahead and eat it. But you know what? It might cause somebody else to stumble. It's not a matter of whether it's right or wrong. It's a matter of whether it will influence someone else for something wrong. I mean, we hear that a lot when it comes to certain things. You know, that aren't spelled out so clearly in the word of God. Thou shalt not do this. 
So we should not lead people into sin by direct example of sinning or abusing our liberty. Fourthly, we can also lead people into sin by failing to lead them into righteousness. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We're we're called as believers to lead people in the righteous path. And you might be sitting there today, you know, I don't go around just seducing people into sin. I don't go around provoking other people to sin directly or indirectly, knowingly. I don't do that. I don't abuse my liberty in Christ. You know, I just kind of do my own thing. I just kind of keep to myself. I'm not hurting anybody. Leave me alone. I'm here to tell you that may be the biggest sin of all. When you're not stimulating somebody else for righteousness, what are you doing? Over and over, the New Testament talks about provoking people to righteousness. Hebrews 10.24 says that we're to stimulate one another to love and good works. Jeremiah 23 really condemns all the prophets that did not lead God's people into holiness, into righteousness. So, it is to cause a brother to sin, to fail to strengthen that brother. God has given you certain gifts. God has given you spiritual gifts. He's given you talents. He's given you ministry opportunities. And you know what? Unless you're using that to the fullest of your ability and your God-giftedness, I really believe that you're not feeding into the body of Christ what is an element of necessity for them to grow. You can't just sit back, beloved, and say, well, you know what, I'm not doing any of the bad things, so I'm not, not going to do anything. You've got to get out there, you get, roll your sleeves up, and get busy. Influence people for righteousness. I mean, God didn't call us to be a bunch of monks on top of a mountain so that we wouldn't offend anybody. You know, you may look at this and say, gee, I, it's such a big deal that we don't offend anybody. I'm just going to pull away from everybody. I'm never coming to church again because if I offend somebody, you're telling me it's better off that I'm dead. <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it, but that's not the biblical way to look at it. No, you've got to get in there and you've got to influence people for righteousness. William Barclay tells a story about a man on his deathbed. And his family was gathered around and this poor guy was just stressed out. I mean, he knew he was going to die, and he just couldn't sleep at night. And this went on for weeks, and the family was just beside themselves trying to figure out what is causing this. And they finally had a discussion with him about it. He finally opened up after repeated tries. And here's what he said. He said, when we were little boys at play one time, one day down at the crossroads, we took one of the signposts. And what we did is we reversed it. So the arrow was pointing the other way for that town, that city. He said, I'd never ceased all of my life to wonder how many people were sent the wrong direction by what we did. I mean, we can look at that kind of from the spiritual dimension and realize, beloved, that This morning, you know what? Your life is a signpost. Your life is a signpost. And if it isn't pointing the right way, how many people, how many people are you sending in the wrong direction? The Bible says, you know what? It'd be better for you to be dead 
them to do something like that. And that applies to all of us. It applies to husbands, it applies to wives, it applies to children, it applies to parents. Are we causing someone else to sin? He says there in verse 7, he says, Woe to the world for the temptations to sin. And he says, it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. In other words, he's saying, you're living in a sinful world. You're going to be faced with sin all around you. But woe to the one, judgment on the one, cursed is the one, you might say, who actually goes out there and causes another believer to sin. Very serious in the eyes of God. The last thing here, the prevention prescribed You say, well, how can I prevent this? I don't want to do this. And we don't need to go into this. We've been through this before in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. (laughs) It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet than to be thrown into the eternal fire. That's talking about hell. Hell is a real place. It's a place that awaits those who reject Christ. What's he talking about? Well, in Matthew 5, he was talking about unbelievers. And I think here he's talking about unbelievers. But we can apply it to believers. It's kind of a hyperbole, you might say. He's not saying you go out there and you literally, if your hand causes you to sin, well, then hack it off. And the only reason I say I know he's speaking that way is because all you have to do is look at the disciples. I mean, you just, you know, you, you can call them stubby, you know. Hey, stubbies, how you doing? Because they wouldn't have anything left. You know, they, they just were always messing up. So he's speaking here in an illustrative manner. And what he's saying is whatever it takes for you to deal drastically with your sin, you better do it. That's what he's saying. And as believers, we can apply that. Sin is serious. Yes, it's forgiven, is forgotten by the blood of Christ. But it still has consequences. And some of those consequences may be of those around you that maybe you're influencing in a wrong way. Deal drastically with your own sin. You know, what that means, beloved, he says, guard your hands, your feet. He says, be careful what you see. That's what he says. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. There's a little chorus that goes, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above, he is looking down in love. Be careful little eyes what you see. See, the idea here Jesus is getting is take drastic measures to take care with your sin, to deal with your sin. Because you're never going to be able to keep from causing someone else to sin unless you're not sinning yourself. So what's that mean practically? In the day and age we live in, you know what? If you have an issue with pornography on the computer, get rid of the computer. (laughs) What? I couldn't operate without a computer. Too bad. That's what he's saying. If you can't deal with what's on the television, get rid of the television. If it becomes a time hog to you, get rid of it. That's what he's saying, beloved. 
Don't flirt with it. Don't mess around with sin. Take drastic action. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says this, I beat my body to bring it into subjection. What he's saying is, I do anything. I beat my body rather than allow it to move into sin. He's not dealing with some kind of a literal cutting off of the limbs. He's saying, you know what, whatever your sin is, you better deal with it, and you better deal with it drastically. Don't think that you can handle it, that it's not affecting anybody. It does. It even comes and it affects the church. So we see the promise, we see the punishment, and we see the prevention. I pray that we take seriously how we treat one another as Christians. And then we do everything we can to reach out and to build each other up in righteousness. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that, Lord, this is not an easy message to study for, let alone preach. And Lord, I pray that you would take your word and that you would work it deep into our hearts. That, Lord, that we wouldn't look for excuses or how to get out of what your word says here. Lord, if there's people in this auditorium even now that are deep in sin, maybe nobody else knows about it. Maybe just you and God. The Word of God says you have to do whatever it takes to deal with that sin. And trust me, you can't do it alone. You need to cry out to Him. You need to ask Him for mercy, for grace, for strength. And you've got to cry out to somebody else, another human being, They can help you to be held accountable, to encourage you, to pray for you. Yeah, that's a humbling thing to do. But isn't that what we're reading about? You're going to enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. You're going to humble yourself like a child. Father, I pray for each one here, each soul here this morning. Lord, I pray if there's any that have not put their faith, their trust in you, have not humbled themselves like children. God, I pray that they would hear this wake-up call because there is a place of hell, fire, and brimstone that awaits their eternal soul if they reject your grace here on this earth. Do your work, Father, in their hearts. Draw them to yourself pray that we would take this message of the gospel out into a lost and dying world, that we would see many come to Christ, be freed from the burden of sin, the penalty of sin. Lord, we look forward one day to be freed from the presence of sin. When when we are in your presence, by your grace, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.